You know, in the language, the different kinds of words that we use to describe our relationship with Christ, we use the words trust, we use the words faith, we use the words peace, um, and hope, all of those kinds of words. But we probably, we probably don't use the word adore as much. It's just a really refreshing uh, reminder that we're not just supposed to like Jesus or just trust Jesus, but that it's not that just that he requires that we love him, but that he is worthy of our love. See, that's the part that I think that's the disconnect, you know, the worthiness part, you know, is... Um, I mean, really, most of the people that we love in our life today, we love them because they're worthy of it. You know, they, there's some kind of connect, connection, some kind of relationship or whatever, and so we give them that emotion because they have demonstrated a worth. We love our children because they're worthy of it, because we're their parents. But I think it was good to, I, I think that that reminder of needing to adore Jesus was if you came and that's all you heard today, that would probably be enough. The reminder to adore, adore Jesus. Um, so if I'm honest, I probably don't wake up every morning thinking about how much I adore Jesus. Even though in reality, the surpassing worthiness of Christ now, I won't understand that until I'm into the next life, right? I won't realize just how worthy Christ is until I get into the next life. And then I'll look back and wonder how I could have missed it so much in my adoration of him. So I'm not trying to moralize here. I'm just saying I think that that song was just a really refreshing uh, reminder. So thank you, Stacy, for for bringing that to us this morning. I really appreciate that very much. Um, so we're continuing on in our Advent series uh, this morning. Last week I talked about Joseph, the four dreams of Joseph, and how uh, in those dreams he cared for, provided for Mary and Joseph. And so uh, thus far we've talked about the angels. We talked about Mary uh, and the important part, obviously, that she played. And then last week was Joseph. Today I'm going to be talking about the shepherds, and then the second Sunday in January I'm going to be talking about the Magi, which seems to be appropriate since the Magi showed up uh, somewhat later um, to express their adoration and love to Jesus as well. And so we're going to be talking about uh, that group then, and then, but today we're going to be talking about um, the shepherds. Uh, before I get into the text, I was thinking about this. You know, when you're, when you're working in a, a kind of darkness where you can't see your hand in front of your face, much less anything else, and all of a sudden your whole world explodes with light because Gabriel shows up to tell you about the birth of this king. And as the text goes on, uh, in, the new, in the New International Version, it says, and they were terrified. And, uh, 
and so, um, but, you know, the angels, as they said to them, you know, not to be afraid because we have this, we have this wonderful news. It's just this wonderful news that should cause joy. My wife and I were driving in to the church this morning. There was in the front yard of a house in Beaver, the word, the word joy on a, about this tall, uh, and uh, it was, you know, quite distinct in the, in the yard. And as I was, as we were driving past it, it occurred to me that probably during the Christmas season, there was no word that is more disconnected from the original intent of why it became prominent during the Christmas season than the word joy. I just think that when most people think of the word joy, they don't think about Christ coming to die for our sins 2,000 years ago and what that would mean for us, not only in this world, but in the world after eternity. I just don't think joy is a part of that thinking process. I, I think when they, if they do think of joy, most people, it's about maybe being with family, but certainly what if you're a kid, uh, with kind of the joy that comes up Sunday morning when you get up and you get to see what your parents and grandparents have done for you, whatever. But I just wonder if joy is a regular part of how we feel during the Christmas season and for the right reason. If that word joy is connected to our sentiment as it relates to Christ and what he did for us. So... I think that that's part of the message that the, the angels were trying to send to the shepherds. And, and I think the shepherds received that because given who uh, they were in that society, in that culture, none of those shepherds felt as if they stood a chance for any of the promises that were given as they understood them in Judaism, as they were taught by the teachers of the law. Now today, I'm going to be spending most of my time in Luke, and um, it is a distinctive of Luke to focus on um, the socially marginalized people. No other gospel does what Luke does in this way. Luke spends a lot of time uh, giving giving uh, you know a lot of attention to people that in that time and in that place would have been socially marginalized. So it's no surprise that Luke spends so much time telling us about Mary. Matthew doesn't do that. Mark doesn't mention it at all, nor does John, about the role that Mary played uh, in the birth of Jesus Christ. And, and in part in that culture, uh, although uh, you know women were valued and it was especially valued that they could produce children, uh, in documentation, things like that. Women just didn't get the kind of uh, the press that men got. And so uh, in important uh, affairs, women usually were not mentioned. But Luke mentions Mary prolifically. Luke is the only one that mentions the shepherds. So there are, of the four Gospels, there are only two Gospels that have um, a nativity account of any sort. Luke gives us the largest of that, then Matthew, then nothing in Mark, and nothing in John. But Luke very poignantly spends some real time on these shepherds. And again, you know, in that culture, if you were trying to convince a group of people 
that this really important thing was going to happen. This really important person was going to uh, was 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 coming to earth or coming about, and that and that in order to herald that person's coming, we're going to start with the shepherds. That would have been a ridiculous thing to think back about back then. Just ridiculous. So. Uh, because nobody, nobody gave the shepherds any kind of, uh, you know, any, any kind of credence. So it's fascinating that God would want to make his first announcement to the world, to the shepherds, to the people who were socially disenfranchised, to the people who were rejected, by and large, by the religious elite of the time. And so um, I'm just bringing that up because I think it's helpful um, if, we, uh, if we see that particular lens through which Luke tells this story. Now, it's also interesting, just four chapters later, after Jesus has grown up and he's about to launch his public ministry, that Luke records this. So this is just this is this is what Jesus uses to launch his public ministry. This is from Luke 4 18 and 19 where he says uh, in a synagogue he was handed a scroll to read. He takes the scroll and he opens it up. He didn't go to a particular scroll and pick a scroll, he was given a scroll, and on that scroll it said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That phrase, good news, is the same exact phrase that appears in the annunciation that the angels gave to the shepherds. They said, we have good news. We know that word as evangel, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. See who Luke is focusing on here? He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So just four chapters later, Luke brings up this reading that Jesus gave in a synagogue in Nazareth as he launched his ministry. And it seems to me like he's, he's describing the shepherds in many respects, right? And so if you took an ultra-literal reading of this text, you would read that you know, Jesus is very concerned about the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And that is true because those people are a product of the fall. And those people are a product of original sin. And those people exist because of what we do to them and in some cases what they do to them. That would be the physical look, the temporal look about how you would interpret the text. But you could also interpret that text where... To pray, proclaim good news to the poor, that is, the poor in spirit. That he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are in bondage to sin. 
and recovery of sight to the blind, those who are blinded by their sin, and to set liberty those who are oppressed, and we are oppressed by our ancient enemy, Satan, are we not? And so in all of those ways, I think it's appropriate to read that text. And in all of those ways, it refers not only to the shepherds, but to other people as well. But it reminded me of the shepherds as I began to study this text in particular. So we, uh, we want to start, if you have your Bibles and you want to look uh, in your Bible, you can pick it up at, uh, at Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. And so Luke records, And Joseph, who went up from Galilee, remember Galilee is in the northern part of Israel, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, which is in the southern part of Israel, 84 miles away, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town of about a thousand people at the time. It was a village, not very big. Um... Bethlehem was also the city of David. It's where David was born and was raised. Bethlehem was a city where the eventual, where David was a shepherd who became a king and through his lineage was promised the Messiah. Bethlehem has always been known as a community where there was a lot of shepherding. But it's interesting that, um, that Bethlehem was the place where King David was born as a shepherd who eventually became a king. And he became an archetype of king. Because the, remember, there were only, there were only uh, four kings of Israel, a united Israel. And David was the second one. So, uh, and Joseph went up uh, from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So they were still not married at the time, right? Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So I, 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 there, we don't know how long she had been there. She could have just arrived. She could have been there for a while. We don't know. We don't know how long she was there before she gave birth. There's nothing in the text that I can, that I can get to that gives me any sense at all. It, um, you, might, you, you could almost as easily read it as as soon as they got there or while they were there uh, in terms of like when they got there and they... They got settled in. It came time where she gave birth. We don't know how much time was there. I think that historically, traditionally, we tend to think that, you know, Mary and Joseph just got in the gate, right? And as soon as they got there, kaboom, you know, she went into labor and, uh, and had to give birth. So um, that's, uh, we don't know if that was true or not, but that, that sounds better that way. Uh, I don't know if the kaboom is the part we want, but it, and then, so verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because this is, this, this is what happens to Joseph and Mary, but it's also a part of the story in relationship to the shepherds. 
So it's connected to what the shepherds need to be looking for when they go to see Jesus who was just born. So what kind of shelter was Jesus born in? So uh, there, are, there are two words that are used for the word in in the New Testament. One is called catalum, which, um, which is a, a, like a, a guest room in a house. And the other is a, pando, a pandokion, which is um, the, uh, like an inn that you would go to alongside the road. So this is what a first century Pandokion kind of looked like right there. And um, it, I'm sure it looked better uh, 2,000 years ago. But, um, but that gives you a sense of just how, like, uh, you know, uh, kind of hard it could be even there. This is a, a mock-up of, a, of what a house in Israel would look like, this next one. And that's probably a bigger house than what many Israelites would have lived in at the time. Many of them lived in like single floor dwellings, not two floor dwellings. But still, if, they, if Mary and Joseph were in uh, this kind of uh, house in Israel, do you see the star at the top on the right? That would have been the cataloom. That would have been the guest room up there, probably. Now, and I'm thinking if that, wa- if that was the kind of house, the only way that you access that house is up a ladder. And if you're nine months pregnant, maybe not something you want to try. You know, I'm just guessing. I mean, that might not be the best thing to do. And so maybe that's why they, may, they were relegated to the first floor and had to do what they had to do on the first floor. Now, this next image, oh, and, and so... The lower um, uh, star would be where, um, if they couldn't get to that guest room at the top because it was full, because somebody was already there, probably an elderly couple or whatever, they probably stayed in that lower part there on the left. And if you break that out, um, that's a storage room on the left. In the middle is the kitchen. And on the right is a stable. So... You probably would violate some state laws if you put your kitchen next to the stable here, just guessing. But, but you could see then if they were lived in that kind of a house and Mary couldn't be on the top floor, why it might make sense to have the baby in the manger next to the stable. All right, so this next one I think is more accurate of what it might have looked like. So you can see that there are largely two rooms there uh, in that very simple home. The animals here again stayed and that the, the, the manger would have been where that woman is right there. Uh, there probably would have been a manger there, a feeding trough where they could feed from that higher portion. The animals would have stayed lower. And actually they liked the animals in the home because the body heat of the animals helped to heat the home during cold nights. And so and it, it, they could keep an eye on them and make sure that predators or thieves didn't take them or whatever. But uh, that, that too, that mock-up too, gives you an idea of what the home might have looked like. So there's been some debate historically of whether or not uh, this was a guest room in a house or whether or not it was an inn alongside the road. A pandokion is an inn alongside the road. A cataloom is a, a guest room in a house. 
So um, there's, the, there's a guy named Kenneth Bailey, whom I've cited before, who really, I think, did some, some great research. He is a, a scholar um, who lived in Palestine for 40 years, and he would take uh, some of the biblical texts and he would go into communities that had not changed for thousands of years. Those communities had remained largely the same. And so when he would read the story of Joseph and Mary having their baby, uh, to those people who lived there, you know, that, those tribes that lived there for thousands of years, he would read those stories, and he would say, now, in our culture, we would interpret that as Mary and Joseph stayed, tried to stay in an inn, but there was no room at the inn, so then they had to stay in a stable to have the baby. And the people in those communities just thought that was the most ridiculous thing they ever heard. Um, and because of the emphasis on family, and uh, because uh, no community would, would subject themselves to the kind of ridicule that surrounded communities would give to them for not housing a young couple who, the, the wife of which was about to have a baby. I mean, the hospitality thing there is, is very, very important. It's enormous. And so that's, what, uh, that's how Bailey uh, described it. And so, um, uh, and so, uh, Bree, if you could go to the, just jump ahead once. There's a, a picture I took of one of the, uh, keep going, I'll come back to that though. So in this, this is from my ESV Archaeological Study Bible. And by the way, I just want to say to you, so this is my ESV Study Bible number one. Okay, it's just a regular study Bible. My ESV Archaeological Study Bible give me two different emphases, two different accounts on what may have happened in the birth of Jesus. So this one says they probably stayed in an inn alongside the road in the notes. My archaeological study Bible says this in its notes, which is why it's good to have multiple tools so that you can get a bigger, broader picture of what really might be going on in the biblical text. So let me read this to you. Um, According to deeply rooted customs of travel in the ancient Near East, Mary and Joseph almost certainly would have stayed with relatives when they were in Bethlehem, because after all, that's where their, that's where their family came from. The, the, this places Jesus' birth in a family context. The typical Greek term for an inn, pandokion, is used in the Gospels only in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The term in this verse, usually translated as cantalom, can also be understood as guest room. This term is elsewhere used in the Gospels only for the room in which Jesus held his last supper. That was a pantaloon or cantalom when Jesus had his last supper. Every private, home, every private home had a room usually located to or at the entrance of the house that was used to receive and lodge guests or to hold events to which people, uh, to, to, which, of peop- which, to, to which groups of people were invited. So um, it would seem, if we go back to this map that I have, on the, it sort of looked like this. So the guest room, now they say the guest room would have been closer, and so I, I just put it there. But you have the guest room at the cantaloupe, you have the family living room, and from the family living room you had 
the mangers and 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 then you have you go down those steps and then you go into that place where the stable where the animals were kept this makes more sense to me just because of the customs of that part of the world uh, where family the emphasis of family and hospitality are so important that to be cast out of an inn or that no one in a village or a town would take you in with your pregnant wife to help you. Um, it sounds more like the West than it does the East. Honestly, it just sounds more like something we would do here in our, in our culture as opposed to what they would do in their culture. So, um, so for whatever reason, this seems to be what's going on. So when the shepherds then went to see Jesus in a village that was about a thousand people, it wouldn't be hard to find uh, Mary, who had just given birth, because you know those villages are deeply immersed, right? I mean, it's like Peyton Place. You know, anything that's said, you know, makes its way around in, in no time, for those of you who know what Peyton Place is. But, um, and so it would not have been hard for them to find. And so they would have gone to this home uh, where because of the census, all the homes and places were stuffed with people, that this would have been the situation. The shepherds would have found um, Jesus. And by the way, at the very end of the text, as the shepherds gave an account of what happened to Mary and Joseph, it says, and everybody was amazed by what they heard. See what I'm saying? So the picture that we have is that Mary and Joseph were kind of alone and a few shepherds show up and, um, you know, they're kind of isolated. And that's really probably not what happened. There was a group of people there. Um, it would have, you know, even just in the birthing practice for Joseph to have uh, been given the sole responsibility to bring a child into the world while they're surrounded by women who have participated in that before, it just probably wouldn't have happened where that would have happened to Mary in that kind of a way. So I'm not trying to reduce the severity or the direness of their circumstances. I'm just saying I think a fair and proper reading of, of how we're to understand this given the culture is a better way to look at it. So we come to verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out on the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord. So remember, anytime in the New Testament you see the term an angel of the, of the Lord, it probably means Gabriel. Because anytime, so whenever the name Gabriel is used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is a messianic implication. The Messiah is somewhere in there. So Gabriel seems to be the guy who's responsible for the messianic messages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So I, I think it's just really hard to capture that sense that appearance of what that would look like in exodus 24 verse 17 
Moses describes the glory of the Lord in this way. The glory of the Lord, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And if you go through the whole of the biblical text, there are all kinds of different ways in which the glory of the Lord is described. All of it is overwhelming. All of it is incredibly powerful. All of it is just like this so intimidating. All of it is the kind of thing where you would fall, not on your knees, you'd fall on your face when you saw it. And because it was this all-consuming light and heat and fire. And so when Gabriel shows up, this is what the shepherds, who were in darkness. Like, I, I think I've shared with you before. We don't know darkness like they knew darkness. If you've ever traveled out west, where the sky is not polluted by the ambient light from the surrounding cities, have you ever done that? And how you can see the stars on the moonless night. Right? It's just incredibly powerful. That's the kind of experience they had. You, you probably couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And all of a sudden their whole world is lit up with the appearance of Gabriel. What would that make them feel like? How would you feel if that was your experience? What would you do? Would you be terrified? I think you would be, and I know that I would be, appropriately so, to be terrified by that. I mean, they were just sitting around, you know, maybe getting ready to go to sleep, maybe just having finished dinner, talking, gossiping a little bit, joking around, and then kaboom. There's not a shadow to be seen. Their world is lit up, and there's this incredibly powerful figure standing before them. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. There's that term, good news, evangel, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So when Gabriel appeared, he appeared in God's glory, so he he couldn't mask that. And yet, at the same time, uh, he's telling them, I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to understand what is happening to you, to your world right now. And I want you to be filled, in implying here, I want you to be filled uh, with joy. And that that joy should be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I want to say this to you. There are those three titles, Savior, Christ, and Lord, appear nowhere else in all of Scripture. There is no figure in the Old Testament, there is no figure in the New Testament that gets all of that. Not one. Not the greatest king in the Old Testament. No one in the New Testament. So what I'm trying to say to you is, it is an utterly remarkable thing that this person named Gabriel could appear before these lowly shepherds and tell them that this person who's being born has all three of those titles. In fact... 
probably in most places in any part of the world, if you were to give all three titles to a person in that kind of way, it might get you killed. So we have here the word Savior, soter, which means deliverer or preserver. So Jesus, which is really pronounced Yeshua, means Savior. So the name Jesus, remember he said to both, the angel said to both Gabriel and Joseph, I want you to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So here this angel says he is a Savior. He is Yeshua. Then he gets the word Christ, the synonym or uh, uh, Hebrew word for it is Messiah. The Greek word Christos means anointed. So this person is anointed. In other words, he has a special status. He is unlike anything else. He is anointed in a way he has a, not only a special status, but a unique purpose. So he is a savior who has a unique point purpose. He is anointed. And the final word, Lord or kurios, basically means supreme ruler. So he is this deliverer, this savior who is anointed and he is the supreme ruler. Now, these are the shepherds, very simple people. They have to deal with Herod. They have to deal with the religious elite. Not too many years prior to that, they had to deal with the Greeks. Now they have to deal with the Romans. And now this person that's been born is the supreme ruler who is going to save all the people and that he's anointed in a very special way. And that this message is coming to shepherds. They are the first people to hear this. It's pretty stunning. Really, you know, I think that when we read this text, most, in most cases, we've romanticized this text so much that we've kind of lost the importance and the poignancy of what's really going on here. I mean, this is utterly unique. If those sh same shepherds had gone and said to any religious leader at the time what they had just heard said to them, they would have, been, they would have, uh, uh, they would have just been cast out. They, they would have been dismissed. There's just no way that a person like this could exist. This is blasphemy, according to the religious leaders of the time. So I'm trying to make the point, I'm trying to impress upon you how utterly unique this description is, and that this description was given to these shepherds. So the God of the universe sends his best his most powerful emissary to earth to tell them about the fact that his son is born and that he's going to be this kind of person and the first people that he intentionally goes to are the people who are the oppressed, who are captive, who are blind. So if we really wonder whether or not the word 
adoration is appropriate than just read this text through with all of this stuff in mind. It would be so easy to dismiss the shepherds. But that's not what God did. And he's demonstrating that if he's not forgetting the shepherds, he's not going to forget us. If he's not ignoring them, he hasn't ignored you. So we read in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So this is from my NIV archaeological study Bible. It's sometimes it's, the writing is so tight I can't make an improvement upon it, so I just it's better to do it this way. Um, and there are two things I want to mention here when he was born. Newborn babies, after they had their navels cut, were washed with water, salted, and wrapped in swaddling clothes. It would be strips of clothing. The manger was a feeding trough of the animals. This was the only indication that Jesus was born in the stable. And so um, I won't go into all of that, but I, I, uh, I wanted to, to just to mention that, uh, that when it talks about how Jesus was born and put in swaddling clothes, that historically that's how they did what they did. And so in this next one, uh, this next slide I'll show you, it says, if at all possible, the birth of a child took place within a family context to ensure physical and emotional support for the mother and to care for the baby. The act of rubbing a newborn with a mixture of olive oil and salt, then tightly wrapping him or her in strips of clothing, swaddling clothes, is also an ancient and, a, and attested in the Middle East until modern times. Uh, anthropologists report that the practice arose from the folk belief that a newborn's body would become corrupt or spoiled like fresh meat if it remained unsalted. Hey, we have a lot of spoiled kids out there, so maybe this is what we should do. <laughs> Just wrap them salt, you know, wrap them in uh, olive oil and salt and see, what, see if that helps. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. This will be like something you should look for. You will find a baby wrapped in swathing clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. I just, you know, I laugh at this because if Gabriel wasn't enough, right, then let's just send thousands of angels to make my point. And so that's what he did. Now, and I don't know if Bethlehem or Jerusalem, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if, if uh, China saw this event. I'm just saying that at least in their, in their experience, and maybe they only appeared to them. Maybe, they only, maybe only they could see these angels. But it seemed like God wanted to put an exclamation point or several exclamation points on this great thing that he did by sending a multitude of angels. That word multitude is plethos. It means a great number. And that through it, God multiplied his glory. So we read here in verse 14, the song that the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who gets peace? 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who gets peace? Only those with whom God is pleased. And how does God pleased? He can only be pleased through the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. This is, so in this message, there's this kind of ominous caveat here. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. They went with haste. They, what had happened to them so impressed them that they left in haste. In other words, they probably left what they were guarding. They probably left those sheep that they were watching at night out in the fields where predators or thieves could have taken them. But the prospect of seeing this king who is going to be both Savior and Lord was so great that it far outweighed anything, any attachment that they had to these sheep. So when the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger, just like they said. Now here's an interesting thing. You're Mary and Joseph. Um, you're in Bethlehem. You just had this baby that night. And everything just seems to be like kind of crazy. And then all of a sudden, these shepherds show up at your door. And I can't help but think that Mary and Joseph have to start adding some things up. Because in less than one year, there is an astounding fact pattern that congeals from Mary and Joseph on the night of Jesus' birth. It's astounding. In less than one year, the angel of the Lord Gabriel appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. In less than one year. Now, do you think Zechariah talked to Elizabeth and said, hey, you cannot believe what happened. The angel Gabriel appeared to me and said, you're going to have a baby, and that baby is going to be named John, and John is going to be the person who announces about the Savior, the Messiah, who is to come. Do you think Elizabeth had that conversation with Mary? She absolutely had that conversation with Mary. Hey, Mary. My husband, Zechariah, spoke to Gabriel, and this is what he said. So what is happening to you is in line with what Gabriel said was going to happen to Zechariah. And then after that, Gabriel appears to Mary and says to her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and conceive within you a child, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. And then after that, after Joseph is thinking, like, how did my you know, betrothed get pregnant? I think I'll just divorce her quietly. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream 
and says, look, I want you to still marry her because what's inside of her is from the Holy Spirit, it's from God. And you are to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And then after that, the, the angel of the Lord, plus a whole bunch of angels, show up to the shepherds. And the shepherds show up to Mary and Joseph and say, you cannot believe what happened to us. We were out there, we were guarding our sheep, minding our own business, and all of a sudden this angel appeared, and this is what he said. And then all these other angels appeared, and it's about your son. I mean, that's pretty astounding. In less than one year. And then just within weeks, the Magi following a messianic star, show up with some really expensive gifts to give to a, a carpenter and to his, his humble wife that no doubt helped them live, especially when they went to Egypt, but gifts worthy of a king. Now, would you not start thinking, like, what in the heck's going on here? Like, this is just amazing. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So the shepherds said, this is what happened. And everybody who heard that story wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So there were some people around. So what were Mary and Joseph thinking about these remarkable events? You would have to go back to the time of Moses since God manifested himself in such a dramatic fashion. Parting of the Red Sea... All the plagues. I mean, that would be the next closest approximation of how God moved in such a powerful way in such a short time in the lives of his people. <coughs> it's that dramatic. It's really that huge. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I bet she did. And then after this, <coughs> excuse me, they go to, 40 days later, they go to Jerusalem to have um, Jesus dedicated. All kinds of things are said about him there in the temple. Twelve years later, Jesus is in the temple instructing the teachers of the law. He, at age 12, you are hardly considered to be a human being in that culture. But here he is. So, I don't have time to go into uh, some of the other things, I, I, because I have a, a next section here, maybe at some point I can get to it, but in this story, there are tremendous amounts of irony and metaphor and parallels. Tremendous amounts. 
So, um, and, and I can't get to, to them this morning, but one of, the, one of the ironies is that Jesus was born in a city, Bethlehem, where King David, who was a shepherd, became a king. And now we have Jesus, who um, is called a shepherd, who became a king. We have a group of people, shepherds, who, for whom if they did not exist, people could not eat nor could they worship. Because they raised the animals necessary for the temple to work. But they were rejected. So even though they were a means for the forgiveness of sins by the nature of their work, they were rejected by the religious elite because they were always ceremonially unclean. And then you have Jesus, who is a shepherd, who existed to absolve us of our sins, but he too was rejected because of the nature of who he was and his work. So there are all kinds of things like that going on in this story. It's an amazing part of the nativity story. And the fact that God would send his best, his most powerful, to the least of these, to convey to all that if I'm not going to forget them, I'm certainly not going to forget you. And so this good news belongs to all of us. And it's a part of the glory of God on our behalf.